Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are continuing our series on the Augsburg Confession, today covering Articles 7 and 8 on the Church and what the Church is. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois, and my companion confessor in conversation about this article today is Pastor Peter Ill. He is pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois, and one of our former members of the cohort of Christ Confessing Concordians that we once had on this show. Pastor Ill, welcome back to Concord Matters. It's absolutely great to be here and wonderful to have a chance to talk about Christ and his church today. Absolutely, and it is indeed good to have you back on. And today, as we dig into these two articles, it's the only time in the Augsburg Confession, as we're going through it this time, that we're going to take two articles together. And it's mostly because, as we talked about with some of the previous articles, a lot of these articles are related to one another, very obviously, and there's a logical progression there, and we've pointed out some of those things. And then some of the doctrines or things that are brought up in the articles are addressed in later articles and so forth. But these two are obviously very much related together, and they come back to back. And so it made a lot of sense for us to just go ahead and take them together as we're going through the Augsburg Confession here. And so I'm going to get us started by just reading the two articles in their entirety from the Augsburg Confession. Again, a reminder on this show, we use Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord, available from Concordia Publishing House, the publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And this is Article 7 from the Augsburg Confession on the Church. Our churches teach that one holy church is to remain forever. The church is the congregation of saints, citing Psalm 149, verse 1, in which the gospel is purely taught and the sacraments are correctly administered. For the true unity of the church, it is enough to agree about the doctrine of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments. It is not necessary that human traditions, that is, rites or ceremonies instituted by men, should be the same everywhere. As Paul says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And that's from Ephesians 4, verse 5 through 6. And that's the entirety of Article 7 of the Augsburg Confession there. And then we'll go ahead and take also Article 8 from the Augsburg Confession on what the church is. Strictly speaking, the church is the congregation of saints and true believers. However, because many hypocrites and evil persons are mingled within them in this life, as it says in Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30, it is lawful to use sacraments administered by evil men according to the saying of Christ. As he says in Matthew 23, verse 2, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Both the sacraments and word are effective because of Christ's institution and command 
even if they are administered by evil men. Our churches condemn the Donatists and others like them, who deny that it is lawful to use the ministry of evil men in the church, and who think that the ministry of evil men is not useful and is ineffective. All right, that's Article 8 from the Augsburg Confession. So we have in the entirety both Articles 7 and 8 from the Augsburg Confession there. Pastor Ill, as we get into both of these articles today, again, we're taking them together here on essentially the doctrine of the church for us that you're going to give us here today. But before we get into that, Ashley, why don't you go ahead and give us kind of how did we get here in terms of the progression of the Augsburg Confession? What's this in terms of the relationship to what we've talked about previously in the Augsburg Confession here? So the Augsburg Confession is really laid out in a really good order, especially in the first half of it. And so it starts by saying, who is God? That's Article 1. And then it asks the question, who is man and what's up with original sin? And that's Article 2. And then in 3, it talks about the Son of God, namely Jesus himself. And so you go from God to man to the God-man. And then it goes to justification, the article on which the church stands and falls that talks about the importance that it is Jesus who died and rose again for us and brings us that justification. And then Article 5 expands on that and talks about this ministry of the word and sacraments of Jesus that bring that forgiveness and deliver it to us, especially through our called and ordained pastors. And goes on to talk about the obedience of faith. And then, because God's faithful people need a place to be faithful together, it talks about the church and what the church is here in Article 7 and 8. So you go from God and man to Jesus himself, then to the ministry that delivers justification, and then finally, well, where do the justified gather? And how do the justified be God's justified people together? Because Scripture is clear that we're not called to be Christians alone or to be Christians independently. We're not called to be spiritual islands, but we're called together. Uh, Psalm 149 says that. But before I get myself lost on a tangent, I think it's helpful to say that when the confessors wrote Article 7 and then Article 8, they were trying to get a little bit ahead of any proposed objections of the Roman Catholic Church and the papal authorities that they were writing against because they wanted to make sure that they were clear the church is gathered around Jesus' word and sacraments, but they also wanted to make sure to include that sometimes in the church there are evil people and sometimes in the public vision and view of the church it looks like there are unbelievers gathered around God's word and sacraments. And sometimes those evil people are even pastors. And so they wanted to make sure to continue to confess what the church had confessed for hundreds of years, that, yeah, sometimes there are hypocrites and evil people in the human view of the church, and sometimes those people are pastors. But what's important here is the word of God and not if someone is good or evil. And so the word of God even spoken or administered by an evil person, a hypocrite, somebody who might not be a Christian or leaves the faith entirely at some point, is still the active word of God because it's God's work, not the goodness of a pastor or the goodness of a church or church body 
that makes God's word effective. That's God's work, not ours. Does that all kind of make sense, Pastor Smith? Yeah, and as you lay that out there, both in the progression of how we get here and then giving us, I'm going to call that kind of the bird's eye view overview of what's going on in these two articles here. And I think that's a great way to kind of to jump into this here. But as we dig down in, the first thing that I think we got to wrestle with is kind of what you even were starting to get at there in terms of the false people that are associated with the church and things like that, uh, false preachers and even false believers within the church. A lot of times that leads to a lot of scandal within the church, shall we call it the institution, maybe for a lack of better terms that we see here on earth. And some of the the things that permeate out of that are different definitions of what the church is to try and address that issue. And that's maybe jumping to more contemporary applications, but it brings me back to this point that I want to go a little deeper on here with you, is that, you know, as we see presented here in both of these articles and flowing forth from that progression, it defines the church a certain way. And I think that that's good to get into that. What makes church according to scripture and thus forming our Lutheran confession here? The church is the congregation of the saints, like it says in Psalm 149, or the communion of saints, like it says in the creeds, gathered around Jesus' word and sacraments. So there's kind of two questions, and it it might be a little bit helpful to pull them apart for just a second and say, what is the church? Well, that's the congregation of God's saints. That's God's holy people. And then to ask a very related question, how does the church come to be and what keeps the church together and what keeps the church unified? And that is the word of God applied in the preaching of the word, the reading of scripture, the pronouncement of holy absolution, and in receiving the sacraments that Christ has given of baptism and the Lord's Supper. So the church is the congregation or the gathering of God's holy people, and then it is made and constituted by, I'd like to say, that it's there because of the word and sacraments of Jesus. And so any attempt to try to locate the church away from Jesus or away from his word and his sacraments is really a challenge. This is a challenge, historically speaking, to the Roman Catholic Church when this article was first written, but it's also a challenge in how we talk about this understanding of what the church is and does today. Sometimes we hear people say, well, I think the church really needs to be doing this or that. Sometimes people will say, the church is full of hypocrites, and you all are called to love people, and so just go love people more. But in our definition of who the church is and what the church does, We don't talk about the obligation to go love people. We talk about being God's gathered saints who receive his word and his sacrament. We go on and love people, absolutely. But loving people isn't the source and the origin of the church. For the Roman Catholic Church in the time of the Reformation, they would locate the authority of the church on the church's history, on the authority of the office of the papacy, and on the traditions that they had and being able to trace the church through the line of ordination all the way back to St. Peter and to Christ himself. That's not terribly helpful because it talks about the church as a historical institution, not as a spiritual institution. 
Instead, it's much better for us to say, the church is gathered by Jesus, by his word and his sacraments applied today, through that office of the ministry to sinners and to his sinner saints. And we look forward to that gift of justification that's received in the church. And that's our focus and our emphasis, not on the history and the tradition, on the ethics and virtues and mores of the church. No, the church is gathered under the head of Jesus Christ, and it's always been that way. One of the earliest writings in Scripture about the church goes back to the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 42, when it talks about the saints gathered around the teaching of the apostles for fellowship, for prayer, and for the breaking of bread. That's pretty much exactly what the church does today. We gather for the same apostolic teaching drawn from Scripture that proclaims to us Jesus Christ, for the fellowship of God's saints together, for prayer, and for the breaking of bread in the Lord's Supper as we receive Jesus' body and blood to eat and drink for the forgiveness of sins. What we're doing today isn't a whole lot different than what they were doing shortly after Jesus' ascension, because the church is pulled together by Jesus himself. And it's not about our history or our tradition or our ethics or where we stand in the world. It's all about our corporate churchly connection together with Jesus, who is present, who is the head of his church. Yeah, you mentioned in there, I like how you brought in Acts there, and we see there described early on exactly what the church is and what it's gathered around, or who the church is, these believers, and then what the church is as they're gathered around there. And it made me think that you talked about, you know, kind of even the problems at the time of the Reformation with the Roman Catholic Church and locating where the church is and so forth. I mean, you see right there in Acts that we have problems right from the get-go on this. I mean, only a few chapters after Acts 2 with that wonderful description of that early church right after Pentecost. I mean, we got food pantry issues, and then they're dealing with, well, are the Gentiles a part of us or not? And I mean, just a whole host of issues. And then, of course, you can think of also the book of Corinthians and so forth, and just the whole host of problems that were showing up in that church in Corinth, and let alone the other congregations that St. Paul writes to us as well. I mean, just, it, it makes me think, well, one, it gives me a strange comfort to know that the problems that we face in identifying who is the church and what the church is, isn't just a contemporary issue, but it's been there from the beginning. And so that's why I think it's really important for us to dig into, not just here in terms of what we confess as Lutherans, but what Scripture confesses, and that's why we confess it as Lutherans. And so do you want to bring in, you've brought in several Scripture passages for us here already. Do you want to bring any other Scripture passages at this point in kind of giving us this, you know, what makes the Church according to Scripture? I do, and this may seem like a little bit of a reach, but I think that 1 Corinthians chapter 12, especially verses 12 through 27, is really important. And at first glance, this isn't first and foremost about the church, it's first and foremost about Jesus. But any attempt to define the church without Jesus, you've already lost the battle. And so, would it be okay if I read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 to 27? Absolutely. All right, it goes like this. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, 
we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving the greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And that's the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 to 27. Elsewhere in scripture, it goes on to mention that the body of Christ is Christ's body and the head of the body is Christ himself. That in all of this, the body of Christ is individually members of it together, but this is the body not just of the church, but it is the body of Christ, and it's under Christ and with Christ that we live and move and have our being. We don't do that because we are a group of like-minded individuals. Uh, I know some sociologists would argue the church is just a social construct where we all have spiritually agreed-upon beliefs, and that's what makes us the church. No, sir, Bob, that does not work. We are the body of Christ gathered under Christ and in Christ, receiving his word and his sacraments. And it's because we are together connected to Jesus, and Jesus connects us one to each other, that we exist as the church. And we gather first and foremost, to hear God's word, to receive his sacraments, and to be his justified saints. And I think that's a really important thing to remember, that all of our ecclesiology, or all of what we are as the church, sorry, ecclesiology is that word that talks about who the church is and what the church does. And it's really the basis of what we're talking about today. It comes from the Greek word ekklesia that was used for gathering or church. And our ecclesiology, who the church is and what the church does, is based upon our connection to Jesus. If there's no connection to Jesus, we're a social club or a group of people who are trying to make the world a better place, and, and I guess it's okay. But if it doesn't have to do with Jesus, it's not the church. And if it's not the church, and if it's not connected around Jesus' word and sacraments, then we're not receiving the justification that we so desperately need. You mentioned in there that this isn't just like-minded individuals and some of the 
things that we once again face in terms of where people try to locate who the church is and what the church is still in our contemporary society and so forth as well. And I like how you accented there for us that we are the body of Christ. And I think that that's that's a major point that's going to continue to permeate a lot of the discussions that we'll see in future articles in the Augsburg Confession here as well, is that our unity really is grounded in Christ. It is he alone that is the church, and our unity is found there as well. And so that's, of course, going to impact how we see the sacraments and our gathering together and all of those other sorts of things that come up in our life together as well. Um, as you brought in some of the different notions and ideas that are out there about what the church is and so forth, I want to dig a little deeper here and have you kind of flesh out for us here. You brought in some of the things about how the Roman Catholics tried to locate the church at the time of the Reformation. I want you to go a little deeper on that, and then maybe we'll get into uh, some of the other opinions that are out there, even by some of the other fellow Reformed at the time, but even still today as well. And that'll kind of take us into the break here, and then we'll pick up some other things on the other side of the break. But go ahead and get us a little deeper here into these different, these opposing ideas, I guess we could say, beginning with the Roman Catholics about where we try to locate the church. So the Roman Catholic Church actually rejected Article 7 of the Augsburg Confession, and they said, no, you can't talk that way because it's really about the earthly authority and the earthly arrangement of the church. And so you need this connection to the papacy, and you need this connection to church tradition and to the history of the church. And the Reformers were quick and clear in saying, no, we need a connection to Jesus. The church is no human arrangement, and if you insist on a human arrangement for the church, be that in popes and bishops or apostolic succession, where the importance is made that the pastor or bishop who ordains each pastor is able to track through the bishop that ordained him and the bishop that ordained him in this kind of uh, church ordination tree that goes all the way back to the first pope, to Peter, and then to Jesus. This idea of apostolic succession as being necessary for the church. The reformers were saying, no, what's really important is Jesus Christ and his word and sacraments applied for saints. And so to have ceremonies be consistent in every place is even a step too far. And that's something that gets said in Article 7 that's also really helpful to talk about, where the reformers said, you know, local variety in your customs is okay. What's important for our unity is an agreement on the word and the sacraments. There is a place where we say, no, you're of a different spirit and you are coming at things from a different place than we are, and that's a problem. But, uh, you know, Pastor Smith, at the dual parish there at St. Paul and at Emmanuel, you might use different settings of the liturgy than we use, or you might teach different things in Bible study. You might have some different ways of doing things than we do here at Trinity and Millstop. And that's okay, because at the dual parish of Emmanuel and St. Paul and at Trinity and Millstop, we still celebrate the same Jesus. We receive the same sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And it's not that the church has to do everything and have every specific practice in absolute lockstep. Unity in the church is a great thing, but that unity is based on Jesus, not on our ceremonies. 
It's based on receiving properly the sacraments that he gives us, not on having things laid out in just such a way of definitions that are outside of Christ. Yeah, just by uh, way of clarity there, I know what you mean. You and I have known each other for a long time. We go back to, we were classmates in seminary and things like that. But just to be clear here, when you said that we here at Emmanuel and St. Paul's, we may teach different things in Bible study than you teach there at Trinity Milstadt. Just to be clear, what we mean by that is, is not that we're somehow, one of us is teaching heretical sort of different things, right? Right. We, I apologize for being unclear. <laughs> no, that's all right. Like, you might be teaching a class on the book of Acts, and I might be teaching a class on the Isaiah, or looking at the theology and practice of the Lord's Supper, or, you know, that's what we mean by different Thank things, Thank you. That's right? exactly what I meant. Because once again, ultimately, our unity, even though we may be covering different topics or different things in that sense, in terms of what we're teaching in our Bible class, our unity is still found in Christ. And so your point is well made, and just to kind of support that and so forth, because I think this also relates to at least where my mind was going, that you talked about there that at times, you know, the church is viewed as merely a human arrangement, or at least that's certainly an idea that was going on with the Roman Catholic Church and their response in rejecting this. And I think you even said in there at one point that the church is not human arrangement. I want to go a little bit deeper on that before we get to some of the other ideas that are out there about trying to locate the church as well. And this will come up in other aspects of the Augsburg Confession as well, but since it came up here, I think we can at least briefly address it. Are there aspects, you know, obviously I think there are, that's why I'm presenting the question here, so not to set you up too much, but what are the aspects then where there are matters of human arrangement when we talk about the church, again, maybe for lack of a better term, the institution of the church or the church on earth, and kind of what's the proper place of that? How does that relate in here too? Because we don't want to say that there are not any matters of human arrangement. I mean, just the differences in terms of the topics or things that we address or those minor differences in ceremonies and so forth would clearly be that humanly arranged, you have determined that your people need to be taught about certain things in Bible class and mine certain things and those sorts of things, right? You know, what, talk about that a little bit here. Sure. And I th- so I think there's kind of a couple different levels that we could talk about this on. I think that for the Reformers, what was first and foremost in their minds was some of the liturgical things that were happening in different places. So perhaps the Wittenberg Lutherans were doing liturgy one way or had certain liturgical customs, whereas some of the Scandinavian Lutherans that were visiting at Wittenberg and then going back and taking that confession elsewhere, or some of the other Lutherans and evangelicals throughout Germany were doing things in a slightly different way, but they were confessing the same Christ. They were receiving the same sacraments, and they had unity there. So there was a certain amount of leeway for saying, you guys confess the creed before the sermon and we confess it after the sermon, that doesn't make either of us less Christian. It's enough to agree on the proclamation of the Word of God and the sacraments as pulling his church together. That doesn't mean that we should try to outdo ourselves with innovation and just say, well, because that doesn't matter, we shouldn't strive towards unity. Uh, That's something that gets picked up, oh, about 50 years later in the formula of Concord when the Concordists talk about adiaphora, things that were not commanded or forbidden in Scripture, 
And they say it's always good to strive toward unity, but that unity in external matters isn't what makes you more or less Christian. It always comes down to who Jesus is and what he does through his word and his sacraments. And so that's always going to be foremost in the minds of the reformers. Other things that could be handled a little bit differently by human arrangement that don't change how Christian a church is would be like things like, does your church have a voters meeting versus does your church have a policy board that makes that? Or if you have your church potlucks on Wednesday nights, or if you have them on Sunday afternoons, uh, things like that are all wonderful things. And it's okay for each congregation to do things their own way, but it is necessary for us to be in unity on who Jesus is and what he does in his word and sacraments. That's where church unity is found, not on logos or branding, not on this policy or that policy, or if you have a bishop, or if you have a president, or if you have any other arrangement of how your church leadership works. What's important is who Jesus is and how he is received in a word and sacrament. And I know I keep beating that drum, but that's the drum that scripture beats. And that's what's important for us to continually remember in our conversations about the church. It's about God's word and sacraments. There are some areas outside of God's word and sacraments where we may have some slightly different approaches. It's necessary for us to come back always to the word of God and his sacraments given by Christ, God and man in the flesh, to be our justification who delivers that to us. Absolutely. I'm going to put it this way. It's, you know, using the scriptural language, it's the one foundation of the church, the cornerstone. I mean, it holds everything together. And so that's certainly a drum to continue beating, as you've done very faithfully for us here today. Uh, We'll pick up some of those other ideas of where we try to locate the church on the other side of the break here. So we'll go ahead and take a break. But on the other side, we'll go ahead and pick up some of the other ideas. And then what we do when we encounter some of the things that lead to some of those ideas, as I set up before, too, of, you know, what happens when a church goes astray, at least the visible church that we can see in terms of a local congregation or a church body as well, and how that can be scandalous to as well, and how we handle that when we once again find our unity and foundation there in Jesus Christ and his church. So we'll continue talking about that on the other side of the break with our guest today, Pastor Peter Ill. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, and you're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. The word of Christ comes forth from his mouth as a sharp, two-edged sword. By that word, he puts our sin to death, and he raises us to new life in him. Join me, Pastor Timothy Apple, on Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on KFUO, as guest pastors from around the world lead us into the word of God to help us sharpen our faith in Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you.
welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue talking about Articles 7 and 8 from the Augsburg Confession on the Church and what the Church is, and we're talking with our guest today, Pastor Peter Ill, who is the pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois. And as we heard there, Pastor Ill has been beating the drum, as we just heard, that Jesus Christ is the one foundation of the Church. He is her Lord and Savior. And Pastor Ill, as we talk about that then, we set up and talked briefly, you brought in a little bit already here for us in the first half of the show, talking about some of the other ideas and notions that are out there of where people try to locate the church or how they identify the church and what the church is all about and what she does and things like that. And you kept bringing us back to that heartbeat, that one foundation that Jesus Christ is the church and and we're gathered around his word, his sacrament, and that constitutes the church really well. Is there anything else that you want to hit here for us on just some of those other competing notions that are out there, both historically and also even still contemporary today? Yeah, there are some things that come up from time to time that can really be a bit of a challenge. And there's times when somebody comes up to me and says, you know what the church needs to do? The church needs to. And before they get much farther, I kind of brace myself because I'm not exactly sure what's going to come next, but I always measure it against what does this say about Jesus Christ and his word and sacraments. And so sometimes they'll say the church needs to do more for supporting the poor around her, or the church needs to do more to oppose abortion, or the church needs to be more open-minded. And the examples can go on and on. Sometimes these come from other Christians. Sometimes these come from non-Christians or from people who think that they know what the church should do, even if they're not part of Christ's church. Uh, I have one member who, from time to time, wants to read alongside with me a book by one of the new atheists or something like that. And they're full of ideas of what the church should do and what the church should not do. And all of them seem to be focused on not on the church being connected to Jesus Christ and to the gifts that he brings, but rather to how the church can be an agent of social change or making things better in the world as we know it. The church is called to do that. The church is called to live in love with her neighbors. But the church can't do those things until she first and foremost receives Jesus in his word and sacraments. The love that we have in Jesus' church is nothing like the love that we would have in a community revitalization project, or it's nothing that you would find in a local chamber of commerce, or in your local Lions Club or Rotary Club. Those are all fine human arrangements and fine human organizations. The church isn't trying to be them. The church isn't trying to do the things that they do. The church is here to be connected to Jesus. And when we're connected to Jesus, we're able to fully love, starting first and foremost with love that is centered and grounded and originates in Jesus. Uh, That's something that the epistle of 1 John talks a lot about, how we are connected to Jesus and then we go love others with the love that Jesus provides, not just by being good people or virtuous people or people who are trying to make the world a better place. The church is here to be God's holy saints, not just to be a socially active organization that improves the world as we know it. And so 
my encouragement to all of our listeners is when you hear somebody say what the church needs to do is is to start filling in with your in your mind how does this line up with receiving jesus and his word and sacraments is jesus important in that view of what the church needs to do or is somebody trying to be the church without jesus and if we're trying to be the church without jesus we need to stop we need to repent and we need to get back to that first and most important thing that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh who died and rose for the justification of sinners and who declares that to us and then again through us. The church's main goal is always to be connected to her head and her source, her one foundation, Jesus Christ, her Lord. And if your definition of the church and your description of what the church needs to do doesn't have to do with Jesus, we need to stop and go back to that fundamental concept that this is all about Jesus. I think that reflects really well what we've heard in the logical progression of the Augsburg Confession here as well. Obviously, all of these articles flow forth into one another. They're all connected. They're all part of the body of doctrine, right? Drawing on that language once again that you used earlier, and we are the body of Christ, and our doctrine is all united in Christ. It is one body together even while there are different articles of that doctrine that we confess. And I think it was our guest last week, Pastor Michael Shorman, who set this up for us, that he brought out that the first three articles kind of make a trilogy, and then the next three articles make a trilogy. And what you just laid out for us is going on here in the discussion of the church and what the church is, and kind of against those other notions that are out there, reflects really well that second trilogy progression, right? We have justification, the ministry, and then new obedience. And we don't get to new obedience without first beginning in justification, and then that's delivered through the ministry. And then that's the outflow of our good works in Christ, right? But they're only done in Christ. And so then that is foundational for what you just laid out for us there and how we identify the church. But then as I think connecting these two articles that we're taking together today, Article 7 and 8 on the church and what the church is, I think the connection that we see here is, again, as you brought in earlier, sometimes we see within the church people that aren't very loving, right? Or pastors that aren't very loving towards their people. And that creates a lot of scandal and a lot of hardship. And I think you used the example in the first half of the show talking about, you know, well, the church just needs to get out there and be more loving towards others, right? And there can be a whole host of ideas of what they mean by those words and so forth. But I think we can also own up to the fact that obviously we're not as loving as we should be in Christ at times. And that's because there are these false believers and hypocrites and things that work their way into the church as well. Jesus himself tells us that this will be so. And the confessors take this up here in Article 8 under what the church is. It's a direct focus there. So Go ahead and get us into that here then, too, of how we see this at work and at play here, of that the church on earth is both the believers united in Christ, that's who the church is, but yet as we see it here on earth, that at times there's scandal because there are hypocrites and false believers who don't live as the church should in Christ. Right. When this was laid out and written by Philip Melanchthon, and when it was given to the emperor by those princes that were confessing that this is their belief, 
they did a wonderful job of laying out at the same time the church in a narrow sense and in a broad sense and they kind of especially in an augsburg confession article 8 kind of go back and forth on this a little bit article 7 does a great job of setting up that narrow view of the church the church is the body of saints gathered around christ's word and sacraments but when you look at the church from a human perspective when you kind of zoom out a little bit and you have that human identity of the church it gets a little bit broader and there are people who are there when scripture is read and the word is proclaimed who even receive the sacraments who may not do it in faith uh, sometimes we talk about this as the visible church as the broad sense and the invisible church as the ones that god knows are the ones who believe and receive Christ in full faith in that word and sacrament. But knowing that here there are times when the church doesn't always look good from a human perspective, that doesn't change the fact that Jesus Christ is the head and the origin of the church. He is the one who keeps and preserves his church. And this is something that even Jesus himself spoke about in the parable of the weeds in Matthew 13. And the reformers cite this, and I think it's a really important thing for us to keep in mind, too. Would it be all right, Pastor Smith, if I read Matthew 13, verses 24 to 30? Of course. All right. Matthew 13, verses 24 to 30 goes like this. Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. That's the end of Matthew 13, 24 to 30. And it has this picture of a farmer who plants seed and somebody working against him comes and plants weed seeds in his field. Every time I read this parable, it makes me think, where does somebody go to buy weed seed? Um, I don't know. I, I guess I'm not, uh, I'm not a bad enough actor to try to do that kind of a thing, so I don't need to know. But somebody comes and tries to plant weeds in the midst of the good field, and the farmer's servants say, well, we can go get rid of the weeds. But the farmer says, no, don't do that, because if you get rid of the weeds, you'll also get rid of, of at least some, if not all, of the good crop. Don't be doing that. And so he allows in this field that Jesus tells us is the kingdom of God, he allows the good and the bad together until he himself will separate it at the time of the harvest. That's his business. It's not up to the good seed in the field to remove the bad seed. It's simply the good seed in the field's job to grow, to receive the gifts that God has given. And so the faithful continue in the church, even saying, yes, there's hypocrites here, Yes, there may be people who gather with us who don't believe what we believe, but that doesn't change what we do. Instead, we simply gather around Christ in word and sacrament, receiving what he has to give, rejoicing in what he has to give, and being glad of it. And then, 
it is up to Jesus to separate out the impure and the unfaithful in time to come. That's not our job. And this is a place where some of the other reformers around the time of Luther and Melanchthon kind of fell off the beaten path a little bit because they wanted to establish the churches in their cities and the churches in their towns as being a place where, by the strict use of church discipline, they would be able to rule people in and out of the church. And they were quite rigorous in what it looked like to be a Christian that went beyond the definition that is given here in Augsburg Confession, Article 7. They would say, uh, these other reformers would say, if you want to be a good Christian, you have to openly manifest and show yourself to be a Christian. And if you're not doing enough good works, if you're not living a good enough virtuous life, then you're not a Christian and we'll throw you out of our assembly, we'll throw you out of town, and we'll call you a non-Christian. And they set this not on repentance and faith, but on making sure that you did enough good things and enough right things. And I want to be really careful because I definitely don't want to say that church discipline isn't important. If you have an openly manifest sinner saying, I don't need to repent, I don't need to turn away from my sin, and it's still okay for me to be a Christian and for me to gather in church, we say, no, God's word says there's, there's nothing doing there. You can't, with one hand, say, I believe this stuff, and with another hand say, you know, I can live however I want to live. Scripture is clear. That's not how we do things. But to say you need to prove yourself a Christian based on your ethics or based on anything that's not faith in Jesus Christ and not receiving the gifts that he has to give you, uh, if you think your good works are going to prove you a Christian, I'm afraid you're in for a world of disappointment. If you think that your ability to speak of yourself well and to prove yourself a Christian and to be Christian enough is going to show others that you have faith in Jesus Christ all figured out, that's not going to work either. Instead, it is only by sinners coming, gathering with those that God has called saints, receiving his word and receiving his sacraments, that you are made holy and pure and sinless. And so living a life of repentance and faith is key and vital. And open manifest sin has nothing to do with that. But God's word continues to come to poor sinners who need him, to those who repent and believe. And in that church, the church of the repentant and the believers, the church that gathers around word and sacraments, it is that authority of Jesus Christ that is celebrated. And so we can talk sometimes about how there's scandal in the church, how a Christian has left the church, and you might start to wonder, did God's word work on that person? This person was called to repentance and they said they believed. Was it God's word that was broken? Absolutely not. Or you might say, this person was baptized and then they stopped coming to church and they renounced the faith. Is it that their baptism didn't take? Was their baptism broken? No. That baptism, instituted and given by God to be a washing away of sin and a new rebirth in the Holy Spirit, that didn't fail. But somebody rejected the gifts of God, and it's grievous and it's terrible, and we mourn that. 
But it's not that God's word failed. It's that sinfulness rose up and pulled somebody away from Christ and his church. God's word is always effective. God's sacraments do exactly what they say. This isn't a failure of Jesus or of his Father of the Holy Spirit. This isn't a failure of the means of grace that Jesus has given in his word and sacraments. This is, unfortunately, a place where someone has fallen away from the faith, but it's not Jesus' fault. Does that all follow and make sense, Pastor Smith? Absolutely. And specifically, is a great focus for us as we take on the particular focus of Article 8 here is specifically on those who administer the work of the church, right? The sacraments specifically, right? And I know I've certainly encountered, and I know you have as well, Pastor Ill, that this can be a great scandal within the church, specifically when it's the pastor that falls in sin or falls away from the faith. And I've seen, you've seen people within those congregations that as grievous as it is when those situations happen and we grieve for, uh, for you and I as a brother pastor who has fallen into sin or fallen away from the faith, that when that happens and we pray for their repentance and return to the faith, but at the same time, the scandal that that can create for those who have received the gifts through that pastor, right? Well, yeah, as you talked about, you know, the sacrament is still effective because God's word is still effective. And that's an important focus because it is such a, a terrible thing when all of a sudden someone hears, well, my pastor has renounced the faith and walk away from it or fell into this sin. And well, my goodness, was I really receiving the sacrament all that time? Uh, were the baptisms valid? All of those sorts of things, right? I mean, that's a really terrible thing, right? It absolutely is. And it can create a lot of heartache in a congregation or for an individual Christian to hear a pastor who has served you might not be a pastor anymore because he renounced his faith or because he did something that means that he doesn't meet the biblically given requirements for being a pastor as it's given, say, in the pastoral epistles, like in First and Second Timothy and in Titus. But ultimately, God's word is effective. Christ's sacraments, an extension of God's word, are effective. They do exactly what they say. At Augsburg Confession Article 8 talks about rejecting the Donatists. This goes back to the early church when she was undergoing a time of persecution. And a question was asked about, so we have a pastor in our church, and under the threat of persecution, he said he didn't believe, or he offered a pinch of incense to the emperor or to the Caesar, uh, but then he comes back and wants to be a faithful pastor. Are the baptisms that he did valid? The times that he administered the Lord's Supper, the times that he spoke the absolution, the sermons that he preached, the hearing of the word of God that we did under him, does that still work? Are we still Christians because we're not sure he's still a Christian? And the early church spoke, and the Lutheran reformers keep up that line and say, no, no, we have a problem with the Donatists who would say that uh, your faith is in jeopardy. No, your faith is not in jeopardy because it is the word of God that does the working, not the actions of a pastor or a priest who may or may not have fallen into sin. Wherever the word of God is rightly proclaimed and the sacraments rightly administered, God is there in the midst of his church, and there's no reason to fear or to doubt. 
And so if that's a contemporary issue or an issue that goes back in the past, we recognize this is God's word and sacrament that strengthens his church. Even if that word and sacrament is spoken by an unbeliever or by somebody who would later leave the faith, God's word and sacrament works. Yeah, and that is really a helpful understanding to have because, again, we do encounter this all over the place still today, and the crises of faith that, I mean, the stories are just endless that we encounter when these sorts of things happen or when these evil things are done within the church by church members, and then all of these charges that come against the church of being full of nothing but hypocrites and all of those sorts of things, having that focus as it's Christ and his word and sacrament that are doing the work, and that does not fail even if we do. Man, what a great comfort that is. It absolutely is, and it's something that we need to continually remember because when we look around at the church, the way that we see it, we see a lot of the messiness and a lot of the, the sinful degradation and corruption that happens. We are a church full of sinners, but we are also a church full of God's saints. And we're made saints by the way that Christ comes and deals with us in his word and in his sacraments. And so it's not the virtue or the authority of your pastor that makes you a Christian or that keeps you a Christian. It is the self-sacrifice and the resurrection of your crucified Lord and Savior. It is the way that your Savior deals with you as he calls you to repentance and calls you to faith as he gives you his sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, as he calls you forgiven in the absolution, in those ways he calls you a Christian, he calls you a saint, and he continually addresses himself to you. Your pastor speaks the words, but these are the ministrations of Jesus for you. And continue to rejoice and be glad in what Jesus does. Your pastor's, I'm sure, a good pastor. But he's also a sinner. Your pastor doesn't make you a Christian. Your fellow Christians don't make you a Christian. The way that you might look at your local congregation or your church body don't make you a Christian. Jesus, working through his Holy Spirit, brings you to faith, calls you forgiven and absolved, baptizes you and communes you, and it's there that you have every good and perfect gift from God your Savior. And, you know, I think this is all beautifully summed up in the hymn, The Church's One Foundation. And that hymn is in the Lutheran service book, hymn 644. Uh, you heard it before, but I think it's also good to hear the words again and just think these words over. The Church's One Foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Elect from every nation, yet one o'er all the earth, her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. Though with a scornful wonder the world sees her oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed, yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up, how long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. Through toil and tribulation, 
and tumult of her war. She waits the consummation of peace forevermore. Till, with the vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Yet she on earth has union with God, the three in one, and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. O oh, blessed heavenly chorus, Lord, save us by your grace, that we, like saints before us, may see you face to face. I absolutely do agree that that is a beautiful summary of what you've been teaching for us, uh, what we confess here in Augsburg Confession, Articles 7 and 8 on the Church and what the Church is. Uh, as we wrap up today's episode here with just another minute or so, how do these articles set up then for us what's coming next in the Augsburg Confession? You mentioned before that there's this beautiful symmetry in Augsburg Confession 1, 2, and 3. You have kind of a trifecta there, and then another trifecta, or a trilogy in 4, 5, and 6. Unfortunately, that symmetry gets a little bit broken as 7 and 8 work together, but then they point towards a new trilogy of Article 9, Baptism, Article 10, the Lord's Supper, and Article 11, towards confession. And it's there that it reveals the word and sacraments. The very gifts that the church brings in word and sacrament are revealed in those conversations about baptism and the Lord's Supper and confession and absolution. All of those are rooted in who Jesus is and what Jesus does. Every conversation about the church is rooted in Jesus Christ. And every conversation about how Jesus deals with his church then starts to talk about word and sacraments, preaching and teaching, absolution, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. And so this makes a, another seamless flow to say the church is gathered around word and sacraments to the point where you might want to ask, well, how do you see those? And they're seen exactly here as they are revealed to be the continuation of God's work among us through his word and sacraments as he makes up his church. Absolutely. And that's what we'll pick up with next week then, as we'll look at Article 9 on baptism, the first of those means of grace that Christ delivers his gifts to his church. Uh, thank you, Pastor Peter for joining us again here on Concord Matters today and teaching us this Lutheran confession of the church and what the church is from Article 7 and 8 of the Augsburg Confession. It's great having you on again today. Great to be here. God's blessings to you and to all of our listeners. Absolutely. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.